Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, my name is Mark. I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church, and we're concluding this morning a seven-week series through the letter that Paul wrote to a church in a town called Colossae. It's very similar to the circumstances that they were facing in their day. It's very similar to what we face in America in our time and culture today. A challenge to the supremacy of Jesus, whether he's enough. And we've been looking at what Paul does in his letter. is something he does commonly when he's writing to uh, Christian people that have gathered together to inspire one another toward faith is he challenges us with the reality of who uh, God is, what God's doing, what is his kingdom accomplishing, and how did Jesus bring it all together? And then he ventures into how we live this out each and every day of our lives. And so it's a necessary process to put our eyes on God so that we can understand how we're to be changed by who he is. And so this morning we conclude in a very simple message, but a very powerful message. And I don't want us to miss what Paul does as he ends this letter in Colossians chapter 4. To begin, however, I want to tell you I love words. Uh, I have to make fun of myself because I opened with that line and then I couldn't get my words right at all this morning, so we're going to try again. I really love when people put words together and they do it beautifully. They create images and emotions. Words can make me laugh. Words can make me cry. Words can make me blush. Words can make me thoughtful and those words can penetrate deep inside who I am and cause lingering moments and reflections. I've, I've read books in my life where there's certain phrases in a book that I can't forget and I don't want to. You think about it all the time, how much words can, can move us. Now, I know I'm going to be made fun of this and go ahead because it won't change me at all, but one of my favorite pieces of literature has a friendship in it that I value. It's a friendship that when I think about it, every time I hear the interaction, when it's depicted, or I see a movie of it, or anything, when I see the friendship between these two characters in this piece of literature, my heart stops. I want to just be in that moment, and I never want to leave it. Can you guess? It's the relationship between Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. (laughs) Um, No, don't make fun. I love it. And when I read those books as a kid or I read them to my sons when they were little growing up, that relationship, Piglet and Winnie the Pooh are two of my favorite literary characters of all time. And there's a quote as Winnie the Pooh is speaking to Piglet that just makes me want to stop these words, stop me in a moment, impact me. Pooh says, Piglet, if you live to be 100, I want to live to be 100 minus one so I never have to live without you. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It just proves to me I have no friends. And so uh, that's maybe why it leaves me longing, right? Words. Steve Martin, one of my favorite comedians, says this. Some people have a way with words and other people, um, uh, not have way. And I thought, very well done. Very well spoken. Never underestimate the power of words and what they can accomplish. Never for a second underestimate the power of our words and what they can produce. Words convey meanings, and meanings respond to realities and dreams and fears. A judge says a few words, and a person's life is saved or condemned. A doctor says a few words, and there's rejoicing or the preparation for a harsh reality. A parent speaks a word in a crucial moment, and it builds up a child or crushes them. I read that for every word in Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, 125 people were killed. Words matter. In the book of James, James compares 
and contrasts words repeatedly in this writing to the early church. He says that our words are a bridle and a rudder. They direct us. They're a fire or a poisonous snake. They destroy us. They're a fruitful tree or a fountain. They delight and replenish us. Paul has talked about the character of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the conversations that Jesus is having with the world through the gospel. And then he talks to us about our character, our conduct, and our conversations as we take the gospel into the same world Jesus introduced it into. So because of that, I want to just point out two things, that our interactions with God matter. They do. Our, our conversations and our interactions with God matter. This won't surprise anybody in the room, but I want us to value it. I want us to understand the opportunity that God has given us in this unique thing. Look at Colossians 4, 2 through 4 with me. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. I love the fact that Paul is writing this letter while in prison. And his prayer is that the gospel would be able to be heard so that it could work. Paul would also tell us in the book of Romans, in the letter to the churches of Rome, he would tell them that it is by preaching that faith is presented to people as an option to trust and hold on to who God is and what he's done, to proclaim it. So I want to give you four things about this conversation with God we call prayer. I want to give you four things about it because it shapes us. First of all, prayer shapes our commitment. It shapes our commitment. Verse, in verse 2, he says, devote yourself to prayer. Give yourself to it. Don't quit. Yes, it is a discipline, not a duty. But disciplines that draw us close to God are privileges, not punishment. He's drawing us together, and he says, don't quit on this. I know as a father, I love my boys desperately, but there was nothing more frustrating. And I don't mean made me angry at them. It just frustrated me in the broken world we live in where my boys would try one thing the first time and if they couldn't do it, they would look at me and their mom and they would say these words, I can't. Well, Heather would be all compassionate and kind and I would lose my ever-loving mind. I was like, dude, you're never gonna be great at anything the first time you try it. That's why you practice. That's why you, you work at it. That's why you invest yourself in it. Think about it. There was no musician on the stage here this morning who led us in such powerful music, who was good at what they were just playing up here the first time they tried it. There was no singer on this stage this morning with these beautiful voices who ever sang for the first time, everybody went, oh, don't work on that. Just leave it as it is. There's no athlete in this room. There's no scholar in this room. There's no business person in this room. And God knows there's no parent in this room who was good at it the first time they tried it. Amen, church? If you want to be good at anything, you have to put in the time, the 10,000 hours, they say. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not good at prayer, give it 10,000 hours. But don't quit because it shapes your commitment to God. It is what he asks of us, not as a duty, but as a privilege. You see, when we think about how the early church grew, they grew in prayer. The most common expression in the book of Acts for what they did when they were together was they talked to God about their world. They talked to God about what was going on. They paid attention, and then they talked to God about it. They didn't just talk to one another. The 19th Psalm says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord. God hears, sees our words and our prayers. Also, prayer shapes our expectations. 
He says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful. I love Psalm 141, verse 2. There's no, if there's no fire on the altar, the incense will not get to God. I love that. If there's no passion and purpose, if you're praying to say you prayed, your words probably don't leave the ceiling. But even words that cannot be expressed, those groans and utterances that come from your spirit and soul by faith to the Father, he interprets every one of those accurately. He's engaged, he's listening, and it shapes our expectations. What do we pray about? We pay attention to the world around us. Real praying demands spiritual alertness. Watch and pray is a common expression in scripture. Look around our world and talk to God about what you see. Talk to God about the people you encounter every day. Talk with God about the temptations you're facing. Talk to God about the desires of your heart for his kingdom. Prayer will shape us. It will recommit us in discipline toward prayer, and it will also build our expectations and allow us to see the world the way God does. Prayer also shapes our gratitude. He says, be watchful and thankful. And I can't remind you enough of this. Paul wrote this while imprisoned, chained up, restricted in his freedom, not being able to go where he wanted to go and do what he wanted to do, all for the kingdom. And instead of whining, he simply reminds us, when you pray, be grateful for God's provisions in each and every step of your life. And prayer shapes our partnership in the kingdom. Our partnership. See, we're required by God and expected by God and equipped by God to do more than sit in a chair and hand in money. He's called us to be involved in these words. The words we have with God can change missionaries' lives. Ken Roy and Stephanie that were just talked about this, this morning as Caleb was presenting who we're focusing on this month and encouraging in prayer and financial giving. But prayer will change Barbados. It's not people, it's the prayer and the power of God and the faith being worked out and the gospel working. So we have a chance to participate. Look at verse three and four. Paul says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. I love Paul's heart there. He's not praying that things would be easy. He's praying that the gospel would be heard. Richard Trench has one of my favorite quotes on prayer. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying a hold of God's willingness. And we began to see that God's will, he wants his will to be done. He's not keeping us from being successful. He's inviting us to partner with him in the work, to commit. You see, I, I read a book one time. Somebody had recommended a book to me, and I was reading it, and I found a great illustration separate of why I was reading it. Author's name was Peggy Porter. And in the 1950s, her son Gilbert was eight years old, and she shares a story from their life that was powerful for me. Gilbert was a Cub Scout, so for those of us who had that experience, and during one of their meetings, he came home with a block of wood, four little tires, two metal bars, and a set of instructions. And he was sent home to create his Pinewood Derby car. And the scout leader gave him the material and said, go home and give this to your father and work on it with him. Gilbert's problem was his dad was disinterested in his son. He didn't do anything with him. He wouldn't participate. He had other things to worry about. That was not going to be his business. So he, Peggy, his mom, reports that week after week it sat there on the table and she realized the deadline was coming up and she had no carpentry skills, had no idea what she needed to do. So she grabbed Gilbert and she said, we need to build your car. And so she went out there and she said, because she had no carpentry skill, all she could do was read the instructions to him and wish him luck. So she and her son began to build this soapbox derby or Pinewood Derby car. And they did the best they could following the instructions and they put it all together. 
it was a little lopsided and it wobbled just a little bit and they found some blue paint out in the garage so he named it Blue Lightning and created the little car and he was very proud of it, she says. He was proud of the work he had done because he'd done it all by himself. He did the best he could but he was really proud of it until the big night when all the Cub Scout packs in town got together to race their cars. She said he saw the minute he walked in that a lot of dads knew how to work with wood because the cars were good looking, they were slick, they looked really fast and they didn't wobble. He became a little bit nervous, but as these pine wood derbies would go, you would have these two tracks and they would put the, the car on the track and they would run the line underneath it with the little eyelet and they would let him go down the track and they would race. Surprise after surprise, he won his first race. And he kept winning. He wasn't winning by much, but he was winning. And they were stunned. His mom was so happy that Gilbert was finding success in all this, but before she knew it, they got to the end of the race and Gilbert's car was still in competition. He was in the finals. And he was in finals against the best-looking car anyone had ever seen. And she said she went to get Gilbert because they were calling for the finals, and she went over and she saw him by himself, and he had blue lightning in his hands, and he was praying. And so she walked over and she said, honey, it's time to race. And so he walked over and he ran the cord through the bottom eyelet, and he stationed it, and they got ready, and the scoutmaster said go, and they let their cars go, and everyone was spellbound, and believe it or not, by the smallest fraction of possibility, Blue Lightning won. Everyone blew up and celebrated. Even the kid who lost was happy. And at the end of it, the scoutmaster, who knew the family well, walked over and said, so you prayed to win, huh, Gilbert? And she said her son looked at him, and she said, no, sir, that wouldn't be fair to ask God to help me beat someone. I just asked him to make it so I didn't cry when I lost. When I hear Paul's prayer, Paul doesn't pray that the prison doors open. Paul prays that the gospel is heard. Paul doesn't pray that his circumstances become better or all the things he could do for God if they did. Paul actually just prayed that the gospel would be heard and that he would, whenever he could, proclaim it the way it deserved to be proclaimed. Words matter, don't doubt for a second, the power and formation of words when we use them well. This is what Paul prayed for. He didn't ask for anything more than God's will to be done here on earth and his kingdom to come. Sometimes the best prayers aren't for fixed outcomes, but for a fixed response to any outcome. Gilbert had the right prayer. And I want that to be our prayer when we think about what prayer does for us. It shapes our commitment, our expectations, our gratitude, it shapes our partnership. Never underestimate the power of words and what they can accomplish when they're used for God. So what we just focused on is our words to God. Our words with God matter. But let's talk about our interactions with friends and how it matters. See, it's not just our words with God, but our words about God matter. And this is what gospel proclamation is all about. And I know right now some of us are tapping brakes because we're like, ah, I can't do what you do, Mark. No, you shouldn't have to. And nor am I expecting you to. I, I'm just simply saying the words that you use with God can also be used about God and they can make an eternal difference in the life of somebody. You see in verses five and six, Paul writes, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul says, make some choices. Remember, and I, I want to be really careful right now and kind of call a time out and remind us, this entire letter is about the supremacy of Jesus, not about our supremacy. It's about his skillful life, not ours. 
So when I tell you that our words with God matter, it's not because we're using the right words in the right combinations. It's actually that we're using words with a God who can make all of it fit together perfectly under Jesus. And what we're gonna talk about in our behavior here in a moment, our words with our friends about our Jesus, it's not necessarily all about whether you get it perfectly and poetically and dramatically. It's whether or not they're about Jesus and faithfully represent who he is. Those words change eternity because we have an adversary. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul writes, the God of this age, he's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, if we're remaining silent and our actions are remaining silent, we're allowing what is to remain what is rather than what could be to become what it's supposed to be. We must never have a sanctified superiority complex over people who are lost. We need to understand they have been blinded from the truth of who Jesus is and they have replaced their hope in Jesus which it's where it should be for the hope in something else that will fail them desperately and leave them empty. See, we are to have the responsibility to act wisely. Our behavior does matter. It's not just about how I live my life and, and my relationship with Jesus. It actually is an opportunity, as Paul said. Remember, this is the same man who would not pray that the prison doors open. He just prayed that those that are enslaved to sin would be set free. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. He's talking about, I know that we don't like to talk about it in our culture today, that there are people that are lost, and without Jesus, they are going to suffer eternal punishment. We don't necessarily always want to believe that, but Paul sure did, because why would he call them outsiders? If they, were, if they weren't outside the kingdom. He said, make the most of every opportunity. And what's every opportunity? You make the most of every opportunity to show them who Jesus is, to talk about why your faith matters to you, to talk about how your faith has rescued you. Not your faith, but who you placed your faith in. See, I had written so much this week, and I want to talk about this point. And then I was getting ready for Thursday night worship, and it just struck me, oh my goodness, I don't need to wax on about this. Our lives matter and our actions are being observed and the world is looking for one person who actually believes Jesus Christ is real. How would they live if they did? That's why we're here. To demonstrate what faith would look like when we step out and trust Jesus when the world would go, what are you doing? And we get to talk about how perfect and fulfilling and supreme he truly is. Whether it's a chance encounter a regular encounter? Maybe it's someone that you want to have this conversation with and you don't even know where to begin it and you may just say to God because your words to God matter, don't deny that. So I would love to, be, to have an opportunity to share with a coworker or to share with my spouse or to share with my child or to share with my daughter-in-law, whatever the case may be, I'd love to have an opportunity graciously and lovingly to not only demonstrate my own faith but to talk, to share, to encourage 1 Thessalonians 4.12 says, so that our daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Outsiders, again. Paul's fully aware that there are people who don't know the value of Jesus. And Jesus talks about it in a parable. He said, a, a man's going to buy a, a, a piece, a field, a piece of property, and he discovers that there's a treasure buried in it. He goes and sells everything he has. He gives up everything he once valued to have the thing of greater value. And Jesus is saying to us, we live in the greater value and the world is looking for greater value every day. He also says we must take care that our speech is full of grace. 
Full of grace is such an interesting term. He said, let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. And I have, I've always struggled with that salt imagery. Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul uses it here. It never quite made sense to me. I heard explanations that were plausible, but at the end, I never had that conviction. Like, I think that's what Paul's doing here, or this is what Jesus is doing here. It said that when Jesus spoke, everyone was amazed how gracious his words were, Luke 4. In Ephesians 4, it says, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, but speak it in a loving way. And then I was doing some research, and I found an explanation of salt that I think is the most viable I've ever heard. It comes out of Leviticus 2.13. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. There is a earthiness to salt. And I think what Paul may be encouraging us to do, and it seems like this is what Jesus was talking about doing, is we live real lives in the real world so they can see the real kingdom. It's when we live above and beyond like we're not actually engaged. When you have a real conversation with people about sports and their kids and schools and politics and all the things going on in our world, people connect with you. And then we talk about Jesus, we get all ethereal instead of actually talking about, no, Jesus helps me in my marriage and Jesus helps me in my business and he helps me in my parenting and he's helped me overcome myself. And, and you see, when we talk about earthy speech, we're talking about actually rooted where we live and in the content of the personal seasoning every day with the gospel hope, staying centered on the person who you're sharing with, her needs, her concerns, her hopes, her desires, taking the gospel into where she is rather than saying she has to leave all of that to discover the gospel. No, isn't it good news that Jesus came to earth to walk among us so we would understand grace and truth? Then let's take the gospel into their moments of everyday life with grace and truth. I know I'm making it sound simple. Do you know why? Because it is. Don't complicate it with all you don't know. Complicate it with what you do know. How has Jesus Christ changed your life? How has the gospel shaped you? And offer that into the everyday experiences of people that you love and care about that you cross each and every day. Never underestimate the power of words and what they can accomplish. So we could preach about prayer and I could show you scriptures about prayer and I could mentally convict you that you ought to pray. It would be ridiculous to leave here today without praying. So make yourself as comfortable as you desire. We're going to spend just a few moments together this morning. You're going to see some prayer prompts come up on the screen. They have to do with what Paul's encouraged us to do at the end of this great letter. Before he goes into this lengthy explanation of all those who have blessed him and prayed for him and encouraged him, Paul challenges us. Make sure our words with God are used well. And make sure our words about God and our lives on God are used just as well. Spend a few moments with these prayer prompts. And just have a conversation with your father. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.